This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm your host, Daniel Shea, and this is another episode of The Focus, All We Mean, an ongoing discussion and debate about how we mean and why. The premise of the podcast is that meaning production and the products of meaning making are pretty much everything there is for us humans. As a species, we do not encounter a thought or a thing, not even ourselves, without us going and making meaning with it or adding meaning to it. Meaning is how we act as much as it it is why we do. And so the subject matter of this focus reaches into absolutely every quarter of human life, our daily routines, our career paths, our bids to acquire new knowledge, our attempts at connecting with or at disconnecting from one another. The format of All We Mean is simple. I open every episode by stating plainly the topic, and then my guests take up this topic to discuss and debate it in the hope that we all might learn something more about meaning. The topic of today's episode is, this is what language means. And for that, I'm going to read excerpts from two recent pieces linked in the show notes below by my now permanent in-show guests, Bill Cope and Mary Galanzis. The pieces are After Language, A Grammar of Multiform Transposition, and The Clause Revised on Cybersocial Meaning. But first, to my guests, I welcome back Bill Cope and Mary Colanzis, professors at the University of Illinois. Hi. Welcome to All We Mean. Great to be here. Well, um, let me get to the topic, which is, again, as I said, this is what language means. And to get the talk started, I'm going to read excerpts from the Clause Revised and After Language. I've just numbered them. They're a bit um, pieced together. So here we go. Number one. The written word, an invention no more than a few thousand years old, changed the way humans think. Intellectual practices of dialogue, rhetoric, and speech were displaced by the visual architecture of the page. Practices of memory reliant on patterns and sound were displaced by a world of thought and meaning dominated by the externalized, spatial, and visual form of written text. 
In this paper, we are going to put the case that the pervasive mediation of meaning by computers may entail another change in our practices of meaning. So if a regime now passing announced itself under the banner of literacy, we are going to name our regime coming as cyber-social meaning, where computers have so completely inveigled themselves into the vernacular meanings of our lives that they have in some practical ways changed our human natures. After all, the peculiar thing about human species nature is its self social self-consciousness and consequently the self-referential historical plasticity of our species being. Number two. In the sections that follow, we will start with the historical trajectory of nouns, then verbs, then adjectives, and finally prepositions and tense. Methodologically, we replace synchronic categories of structure with diachronic categories of movement in what we term a transpositional grammar. Rather than identify and name fixed points in a semantic system, we propose a grammar of change where no point is stable and every meaning that might be captured briefly for the purposes of placing it in the system is actually begging to move to another position in the system. This is neither structuralism, that is, to build coherence and meaning through a series of localized contrasts, nor is it a post-structuralism, that is, to eschew structure in the face of ineffable difference. There are patterns in the movement. We propose a quantum grammar of sorts, in which common nouns are entangled with proper nouns, nouns with verbs, and time with space. And the third and last this chapter suggests that we should abandon language as an at once homogenizing and separating category of social understanding and educational design. That's why we've titled this After Language. We have two reasons to press the case to abandon this category language for the purposes of social science and pedagogy. The first is that language never happens by itself. And the second is that the category brings us to an internal fissure always of great importance, but of burning importance in the era of digital media. This is the gulf that divides written text from audible speech. Right, so those are our quotes to get us started. A lot of ground covered there, and uh, in the one article after language, we have a sort of synopsis of your um, multi-volume sets uh, making sense and adding sense so as to sort of lay the groundwork, the theoretical and descriptive work that that, that stands on. But I think the for listeners, the most interesting thing here will just be to separate out these two forms to start with of text and speech and and why is it that we need to do that and what stands behind that thinking? Um, yes, thank you. Um there was a lot in those quotes there, Daniel, but just at a very elemental level, you know, the, the big revolution was the shift from oral language, right, to literacy, right? That was a phenomenal change and it had technology associated with it. And then came the whole edifice, the educational edifice that, you know, produced the, the grammars that, that were, you know, the patterns in which literacy made meaning and whole education programs and systems and what we're trying to the case we're trying to make now is that language has morphed beyond literacy to a more broader capacity for making meaning now in the world uh, which has extended uh, beyond our imagination what 
the technology can do for us, given what we have put in it. So it, it is a very critical moment for us, for educators and for everyday uh, ordinary folks who are using devices and new technologies and engaging in the world through devices that never existed when the printing press was made, right? Different kinds of devices that impact on the stable grammars we produce in order to name and educate generations of people in uh, uh, what we call literacy and uh, making meaning. So I'm just going to elaborate on what Mary was saying. A bit later, perhaps we'll get on this difference between speech and text. But let's just talk about this big picture thing. So if you wanted to talk about the course of human history, for uh, 100,000 years um, or more, human beings had these elaborate meaning-making systems without writing as we know it. So, But in fact, they had other forms of writing in the sense of um, these represents, representations in the form of art, but also bodily representations through dance, um, sacred objects, which meant much more than the object themselves. Um, so there were these elaborate systems. And actually, um, when it comes to speech also, these phenomenally um, elaborate grammars, um, which Mary and I have written about in the case of Australian and languages. diverse forms. In very diverse forms. Mm -hmm. um, um, which get overwritten by literacy. Literacy massively simplifies um, uh, the way in which language operates. But anyhow, literacy comes along. So that's step one. And we call this um, synesthetic civilization. By synesthesia, we mean these deep psychological processes, what we mean by moving between one form of embodied or artistic or visual or object-oriented um, meaning or another. Right. So literacy comes along, and um, literacy ends up being this abstracted privileged space um, uh, so the first writing was really only about you know the account books of ancient mesopotamia who owned what and what taxes were owed and property records and the legality of property records and in fact the great uh, and wonderful anthropologist called levi strauss uh, one of his great insights was look writing uh, turns up at the same time as slavery so these forms of rigorous human inequality happen at the same time so okay Fast forward then, up along comes the printing press. Um, and what we do with the printing press is we build this, the only form then of telepresence, if you like, was print. Uh, writing and print become these forms of telepresence and they become very, very powerful um, uh, through that. But it's a technology which separates out text from these other forms of meaning on this thing called a page. Um, then what we do in the 19th century is we then institutionalize that as mass literacy which then artificially separates and privileges written text in this world, which was previously synesthetic. Now, the point that Mary was getting to is, oh, my goodness, the Internet comes along. And one of the material aspects of the Internet as a and, and digitization in general, not just the Internet, digitization of meaning is that it uses the same darn machine, you know, which is the computer can create images, create sound. Um, it, um, it can um, create text, um, and we have this new era of, of synesthesia. Um, uh, videos can transmit embodied presence over long periods of time, over long distances, and periods of time, by the way. Telepresence is both time and, and distance. It's both space and time, you know, the past and the future, asynchron, the asynchronicity of these meanings, but also um, simultaneity across space. Um, so anyhow, this is big. And, you know, in a way, in terms of human history, we have a return to 
what we as humans were able to do intrinsically for 100,000 years and which literacy overwrote. So that's a kind of, uh, you know, I'm just kind of riffing off the historical story that Mary gave. There's another kind of theoretical argument about the difference between um, text and speech, but we can come to that. Yes, I'll, I'll yeah, just... Yeah, I think, I think it's worth... Um, you've given us nice broad brushstrokes of 100,000 uh, years of history, so this that's, that's good, and we start off with this synthetic uh, period moving through literacy up until very recently mass literacy, um, and that, as I understand, takes on a certain quality. That's an important step, right, in the 19th century. It's not just a quality in meaning-making, it's also a particular uh, set of practices that leads to um, m massive inequalities uh, about who can, who is literate, who isn't literate, what, is the ma what main languages uh, uh, dominate, uh, what is canonical, who are the gatekeepers of what gets published. Uh, it produced a whole edifice of inequality that we're just sort of taking our stride at the moment. We just, you know, we we struggle with uh, learners trying to get them into the literacy kind of pathway and into achieving goals and jobs, etc. However, the the barriers and you know, I don't want to use the word class, but the uh, segmentation that it produced is enormous globally and within within nations. So. We mustn't ignore that because for the moment, this new revolution, right, uh, supposedly kind of harbors some new democracy and some new, uh, some new synesthesia. And that's why we need to understand it before it is set in cement and controlled by half a dozen billionaires. So let, 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 let me elaborate on the inequality Sorry. story um, now. So actually, literacy is a moment of radical inequality because it's an elite which uses this uh, technology um, of telepresence, uses it as a way, as the a church first, as of a course. media control. The yeah. church, church, I'll get to that as a good example, yeah. but you know, um, the way church- well, does... Maybe to just help, help out your, your narrative, Bill, I mean, the thing that I'm, I'm just sort of interested in trying to tease out is, I mean, if we take on literacy, let's say in the ancient world, you know, from the Greeks through the Romans, and then through the medieval period, and, and we think of handwritten as opposed to what you were talking about then, of course, in the early modern era through through um, print, and then in the 19th century with the mass literacy. I mean, these seem to be, I'm not sure if there's a qualitative difference or if, if it's just increase yeah, in number or... There's a big difference. So yes, yeah. let, let's go back to that first inequality. Yes, it was all handscribed. Um, um, uh, which basically meant that when the printing press comes along, and a, a very important footnote um, is that really the first um, printing press as a technology was invented in China by Bixing, 1030. Um, it didn't take off. It didn't wasn't widely used. So, but in a way, when um, Gutenberg invents his press in 1450, it's um, it's not the first time it's been done. That's a piece of trivia, by the way, but it's an important one. So let's go back now to the inequality story and what the printing press does. So the first moments, it's only a literate elite that can deal with these texts. And by the way, on the religious front, what they do is they create... Icons. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, they, they create mystical texts which are inaccessible <laughs> directly to the, to the illiterate masses. So the interesting thing was that, you know, um, the Vulgate in the Christian tradition, which is this Latin version, became a, a mass, mass uh, text 
um, for the Christian masses of Europe, but only the elite in Europe spoke Latin. Um, so um, what happened was the priests then become this powerful interlocutor where, as Mary said, the way in which you communicate with the masses is with icons and, and with like... mediated by icons mm -hmm. and um, and also architecture, which stands for, you know, the, those Power. staggering cathedrals or whatever, stand for. Um, uh, so you build this kind of multimodal inter interlocutors out of those texts. But the most important thing is it's the privileged access to those texts of the priests and the priests, by the way, in their very big, their fancy cloaks, um, are, are feudal lords. In fact, they are part of this ruling class who even dress like a ruling class and have crowns, have have um, you know, dressed like kings and lords because they're part of that class. But they separate things off by mass illiteracy. Now, the interesting thing that happens, not with Gutenberg. Gutenberg is just simply the mechanization of handscribing, which means instead of you know, you can get a book printed cheaper and quicker, essentially. Um, the most interesting thing is it's not till the 19th century that the project of mass literacy comes along. And how does it manufacture inequality? It manufactures it through schools. And how does right. it do it in schools? It puts the kids on a normal distribution curve. So I often refer to uh, Goddard, 1920, who invented the normal distribution curve. Um, and he is quite blunt about it, actually, that you have a distribution curve where you've got geniuses and above average on one side, very small number. You've got a mass who are, who are merely average or below average. And down the other end, you have the categories are morons, idiots, and, and what's the other one? They, this and you is, label them continuously and every year they go them. to school. But also what you do is you say, hey, here's your opportunity. Literacy is your opportunity. And then you systematically fail nearly everybody, right? Um, so it becomes a different technology of exclusion where when you end up in a factory having had only basic literacy so you can read the factory signs, <coughs> you know why you're there? It's your own fault because you weren't a genius and you weren't you didn't work out in terms of the found the epistemic foundations of modernity built into literacy. You didn't get past those. So one of the problems is to, um, literacy then becomes this a different technology of inequality itself and mass literacy, print literacy becomes this other technology right. of inequality. Right. I mean, the technology then, as you're saying, from the 15th century and then the, let's say, socialization of the technology in the 19th century are, I mean, obviously connected uh, processes, but they are different. And I mean, is, is it then that you're drawing a line now and saying, OK, we have the digital in in, in place, it's, right. it's developing under our feet, but what it exactly means yet for us socially oh, well, is, I'll, is in I'll, flux. I'll, I'll, I'll say what's so uh, disturbing and unsettling and potentially revolutionary about the moment that we're in is that in the era of the mass media, uh, we had people who owned printing presses, moguls who owned the newspapers, right? Um, we had... Um, uh, in the development, the parallel development of other media, we had television studios, we had radio studios. What we're doing now with, with this podcast could only have been done in a radio studio before. Now it can be broadcast to everybody. So what we have, um, terrifyingly, is the means of production of meaning are accessible to everybody and the means of production of powerful multimodal media are, uh, are accessible to everybody. So we have a it's moment a which is fake news. potentially um, revolutionary. Um, but what happens, by the way, in reality in this space, and this is the quandary for all of us, is a pile of rubbish. 
you know, like, I mean, if, you know, what's the, you know, like for, for every, um, uh, we have this incredible possibility, but the populism of TikTok and, you know, Facebook and Instagram and whatever, um, I wouldn't call it a pile of rubbish. It has this enormous revolutionary potential, but nevertheless, the structures of inequality stay the way they are, which means we really kind of need to parse the way in which today's media moguls um, scaffold our meaning and restrict our meaning-making capacities. Interesting thing, piece of trivia. Um, uh, TikTok, which is very commercially oriented, refuses to take political advertising, right? And the reason why is it would rather have people do- twerking because that's not going to upset um, either the Chinese government or Joe Biden, but ads of any kind or politics of any kind is actually a bad thing because it threatens their business interests. Now, we should be talking politics, including on TikTok. Um, so um, the interesting thing is we have these kind of mass de- meanings where our the media moguls are systematically stripping politics, social concern, meaning out of those spaces. And so we might have another um, morphing form of radical inequality in these spaces. We've got to watch out for that. And just- yeah, I, I also, uh, sorry, uh, Mary, but just real quick, I mean, I also think like when you say that, okay, these means of production, and I mean, they're, they're literally right in my face right now. I have, a, I have a microphone and we're creating essentially a newscast or a, a podcast or a radio program, which was, you're entirely right, impossible in the 1980s. But it's, it's one of those attention things as well, the atten- the so-called attention economy, if you like, but that's not entirely what I mean. It, 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 would, it would appear that we have the capability to, to use these means of production more than we actually have impact in them, isn't it? Look, you're, just before Mary jumps in, um, just on that last point about attention, um, it's great that you use that word, by the way, because that's the key word in the key article that, that, that triggered the generative AI revolution. But that's another story for another episode. But no, the attention thing is that it's a tension of populism. In other words, the twerking things get recommended to uh, twi- uh, uh, to uh, uh, TikTok users before ours do. So the problem, one of the mechanisms of control is mass populism as well. So we're in this kind of arcane a specialist space where people who are kind of more interested in, in the nature of meaning than twerking are, um, are talking. Um, so, but the problem is that the algorithms actually favor uh, depoliticization and, and, and mass populism of a, of a low, oh, I don't want to say low variety because twerking is probably a good thing, but you know what I mean. Yeah, but there are uh, also new categories of actors and, and the one that's growing most powerfully and been used Used, being used by different uh, forces is the influencer. I mean, what the hell is the influencer? What was the the, influ- the influencer before was, you know, the books or the radio or the television or the politician or. But now it, it's as Bill says, populist individuals who have mass followings, and even now, um, you know, health agencies are saying, well, how can we get to these influencers and give them some good information to get out? How do we relate to them? And also, they make a ton of money as well as individual influencers. So. We've entered a, a new landscape of uh, meaning making, a new a, a landscape of players, and a new new levels of divisiveness. It doesn't mean that the inequalities, the historic inequalities, don't go along uh, with the populations, but those inequalities now are harnessed by different uh, influences, so to speak, 
not so to speak, literally, uh, in order to motivate them to be, believe certain things, to behave in other ways, to follow uh, particular trends. And of course, uh, the terrible uh, politics we're all uh, uh, in at the moment where nobody's quite sure what the best is anymore. You know, it depends which what's influencing you, what you're reading, uh, what's coming into your feed, whether you want it or not, what's coming onto your wrist, what's coming into your pocket. You but know. the big news today, this very day, was the very news? important news, is Joe Biden's opened a TikTok account. He's not just president, he's presidential yeah, influencer then. Well, <laughs> so having said that it's a communist plot for so many so many yeah. years, all of a sudden yeah. he's got to join the communist yeah, plot. So he's joining TikTok and Mr. Trump has said good words about Taylor Swift. Like this, before the game last night, you might have seen it, before the, uh, what is it, the bowl? The What's Super it called? Bowl. The, before the Super Bowl, he put out on his uh, channel, his own channel, uh, favourable words uh, about Taylor Swift, saying how he had uh, and created the conditions for her to become very wealthy, not Biden, who did nothing for her, he said, and that her boyfriend was somebody he liked very much. Oh, there you so... go. <laughs> just, just, it just goes to show you how the new media has brought this conversation to new heights. Well, uh, speak, speaking of the new media, I mean, without naming it, we're actually talking already about the yes. cybersocial, right? Yeah. Um, and and, uh, and this is right. another one of your terminological uh, additions to s- uh, semiotic interest and semiotic study. Uh, maybe, though, uh, to, to, to turn to this, the clause revised piece, we can talk a little bit about grammar. But grammar yes. and then... And in an exploded sense, right. as opposed right. to what most people will think of when they hear it. I mean, you even talk about quantum grammar in that quote that I gave. That's actually why I took it, because I thought, isn't this a great word? <laughs> quantum grammar. I mean, what, what, what I hear in that and what I also see in, in, in the previous text to it, but also in what I know of your work is, I mean, you are at core materialists. And this means then that you take energy into the materialist view of things as well. I mean, a quantum being a sort of discrete quantity of energy, isn't it? And, right. and that transpositional moment at work below all of the forms and your grammar adds that sort of energy to it. Is, is, am, am, I, am I interpreting this, this metaphor correctly? Daniel, before we go to the metaphor, um, you... And, and we found each other, or you found us, on the basis of the transpositional grammar. And that was our radical attempt, and we didn't know whether anybody would actually read it or take notice, was to say that traditional grammar with the static uh, meaning-making of literacy was no longer as relevant uh, to making meaning. And we tried to, put a, to offer a grammar uh, that allowed for the multimodality for synesthesia, for the kind of movement that, that's going on in the digital age. Uh, sorry. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the tools we have at the moment, the traditional tools of grammar, which we still faithfully teach based on alphabetical literacy, which is the golden standard in the academy, in the schools, whatever, you know, the, the new digital... Uh, affordances are banging on the doors. They're banging on the doors of those practices and habits, and we have no tools to understand them. So these two uh, articles that that you refer to is is a way for us to say 
well, how does the new meaning-making technology, how does it make meaning that, that breaks with the traditional labelling, static ways of understanding literacy, you know, syntax, word order, uh, you know, um, traditional grammar? So, look, let me just pick up also um, on what Mary was saying, but also where you started then, which is... The yeah, within... and, also, and also just to hand to you uh, something, Bill, uh, the idea of perhaps illustrating um, also for listeners' sake, I mean, any of the points in that particular, uh, the clause revised, so, you know, on yeah. maybe using common nouns or, or proper nouns yeah. as, a, as a, a handle for people to get a sense. Of what the difference right. is, uh, I'll, yeah. uh, I'll make a little sub-comment first. Um, before I get on to that, if you don't mind. So you mentioned that our view was uh, a materialist view. It's actually a little bit more than a materialist view. So yes, um, you know, one level there's a, if you take there a kind of, there's the ideal in the world, which is what the way we as human beings imagine our world, world building, if you like. We build these worlds in our minds. We live these worlds every day uh, and they're humanly constructed, meaning uh, pictures, if you like, uh, well, multimodal things that we live these things in our minds. So that's that's the ideal. Um, the material is the world that we actually has meaning in it, right? And and um, you know what we think is that it's not a direct one-to-one correspondence. Yes, there are these complicated transpositional relate, relate, um, arrangements, but imagination is bigger than the material world. We can imagine impossible worlds, um, so it's not a direct correspondence. But also, there are meanings in the world which we've never seen. Um, right. And that's the purpose of medicine, and it's the purpose of astronomy, and it's the purpose of a whole lot of science um, to figure out what those are. In other words, they, it's not a one-to-one correspondence. So we're um, we're idealists as well. But that's <laughs> um, um, but let me get on then to the question you've got. So you, um, you've got there, and again, I'm going to answer it with a little bit of a preface. Um, one of the great um, uh, uh, people in the understanding of language in modernity, language narrowly um, understood, um, um, was Ferdinand de Saussure. And his insight was that it's a series of contrasts, right? They're both sound contrasts, which is how the sound becomes meaningful, um, you know, between one word and one part of a word, one phoneme and another, but also they're semantic contrasts between things. So we can build a system as a system of contrasts, right? Now, what we're arguing is that, in fact, the system is not that stable. Um, in fact, what we have is these things called transpositions um, uh, that are going on all the time. So anything that's at one point in the system, and this is the quantum idea, can simultaneously be at another point in the system or move to that point in the system. That's the, that's the quantum metaphor, the quantum physics metaphor. So to give you an example of that, um, I can use the word dog and it stands in contrast with cat, and it stands in contrast with, you know, it's there is a distinction that we might want to make in the world. Uh, and it stands in a sentence in uh, contrast from runs, the dog runs, you know, runs the action, dog is the, 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 uh, the, the entity. But in fact, the dog's name might be, say, Apollo. Um, so we could say Apollo runs. But in fact, what we have is a relationship between the generality of dogs and Apollo as a specific thing. So in our grammar, we call, um, dog a concept and we call uh, Apollo an instance 
in in traditional grammar, that was a common noun versus a proper noun. That, that, that was the distinction. But in fact, we want to use the concept instance distinction because that happens in images as well. So when I see a photo of Apollo, um, it's, uh, an, it's, it's a representation of an instance. When I see a no dogs allowed in this park symbol, that's, a, that's, a, that's an example in image of a concept, right? So we want to make that grammatical distinction. Now the transposition point, so that's the multimodal form to form distinction. The transpositional point is our dog is Apollo. And in fact, we can in language and in image and whatever, keep transposing those two damn things. When I see that sign, I think, oh shit, I better not take Apollo in there, right? Um, so what we do is we do movement. So the content idea is that it's not about these fixed points in the system, which is the de Saussure idea. It's about the transposability of each of those elements in the system, both across form and across function. Now, let me just segue now to, um, he's a classic structuralist, right? Uh, and structuralism is a great thing because it helps us build patterns and networks and, 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 and maps of things in the world. But segue now through to post-structuralism and what the, one of the great unbelievable geniuses of the 20th century, um, uh, Jacques Derrida said, is that all we have is différence, which is an invented word, which is uh, two French words put together, which is difference and deferral, right? So difference is um, dogs different from a cat, uh, deferral is um, this dog could be a cat. No, that's not a sensible. Yeah, you know, this this instance. Let's that, take like the other way. This instance um, could dog, dog could be an Apollo, which is a concept, right? So he had this wonderful, wonderful um, set of descriptive um, terms about the fluidity in the world, right? Um, but all there was at the end of post-structuralism is fluidity without end, and what the hell? What's the pattern there? So what we want to do with transpositional grammar is build a map of the patterns where um, what um, uh, Derrida did with extraordinary brilliance is destabilise structuralism, but left it destabilised. So what we're trying to do in a philosophical sense and a semiotic sense is build a system, um, a system of differences, a system of deferrals to use um, uh, Derrida's terms, um, which captures the fluidity of meaning in this moment. And in a, in a material sense, to link it to the way the digital can... Right, uh, that's uh, the next step. Uh, ...names it, yep. uh, 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 occupies that space of determining uh, what something means uh, in a very systematic kind of way. Now, by the way, not for today, generative AI then becomes incredibly interesting in this game uh, because it, it makes some moves which were neither made by de Saussure nor by Derrida. That's another. That's another conversation. But yeah, and, and I mean, before we we don't even need to actually get into the digital. We will because of the cyber social, um, and, and and it's quite crucial. It is playing in the background of much of what you've been saying this evening, but or this morning, or wherever you happen to be, listeners, at whatever time of day. Uh, but. It, 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 this this is this all holds this multimodality and this transposition just in the normal world. So you've given us so, for instance, if anyone's familiar with like systemic functionalism and the idea that in a text you have a context and with within which it sits, you have a discourse that gives it coherence. You have the clause, which is the grammar yeah. that we learn, and then you have the expression, which is the way that it sounds or looks on the page and so on. You've said, hey, that's happening in all the forms that we know. 
Yes. You have you you have that realizational stratal structure there in images. An image is no more primitive, quote unquote, than let's say a text, and you have it out there in bodies, the way that we move, the way that we gesture, all of this is equally culturally, you know, complex and historical. Yes, and Bill doesn't uh, says this is never going to happen, but there are people experimenting out there, uh, planting things in our brains that allow us to use thoughts, thoughts. You know, uh, people otherwise known as Elon Musk. <laughs> not just Elon and Mary's, Musk, and Mary's but a, a follower of that particular uh, influencer. <laughs> no, I just think that the technology is accelerating to, in a in a way that we can hardly uh, understand or catch up with it. We that, are well, look, that hasn't happened yet, but what has happened yes. is the generative stuff, of course, which is fascinatingly interesting. But look, what I want to get back to as well is um, I want to get back to something which you started with in the initial quotes and that is the difference between speech and text right so um um so one of the things is in our uh catalog of forms of meaning so we have this kind of little list of forms of meaning which are we think are relatively independent systems so speech is one um image is another space is another body is another um, uh, uh, sound is another, speak, uh, and text is another, right? So when we've got a kind of a, um, a kind of a, uh, a rainbow pattern, if you like, of all these things, because they all kind of in a multimodal transposition environment, they all blend into each other. However, at the opposite ends of this damn rainbow are speech and text, which are maximally different, right? So what we did, what we do in literacy is we have this rather naive thing that we force onto kids via phonics that that speech is merely a transliteration of uh, text is more merely a uh, writing a written text is merely a transliteration of um, spoken sounds um, speech Mm -hmm. into into text right that's what literacy is Um, so um, you know that that is kind of a really naive kind of view of things because they are maximally different and they're maximally different to do to do with the very materiality of their uh, their their expression so when I we're doing spontaneous speech now um, and uh, the cameras turned off and the people listening to this podcast have uh, can't see us um, so what we've done is we've narrowed the channel down to audio only it's about the materiality of the human sensorium right so we have this thing called hearing and we've narrowed it down to hearing only now if I write something uh, and you're not in the room so these are the Again, telepresence, we're talking about telepresence, representation across time and space. So, um, you know, we're not together and people might be listening to this, will be listening to this later on, right? Telepresence. Now, the technology of telepresence for speech is actually putting stuff on a two-dimensional array in space. Writing, writing. Writing. So this is happening in time now. So if I stuff up and say something silly, um, you know, it's, I, 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 and, you know, look, listen to all my ums and ahs. If you were to transcribe this, this is embarrassingly bad writing. You know, it's just piles of causes with you know written all through it, and I'm reiterating things, I'm being redundant, I'm being repetitive, and that's something to do with the logistics of representation in um, in in time, not in not not in space. With you know, it's it's a challenge to represent stuff in time, right? But when I deal with a page, the challenge is to represent stuff on a two-dimensional array. So what I do um, is I write something down. I delete something, I go down a bit further, I go back and I review it, and it's actually a, a spatial process of fabrication. Now, you couldn't get two things 
more different in the world in terms of the human sensorium. One happens through the eyes, the other happens through the ears. Um, but, but the materiality of those processes. Now, let me say this. The irony is that writing is much more like image. Because image is the same thing. You draw on a two-dimensional array. You photograph something which ends up, you know, you're thinking about the two-dimensional array. Um, and um, uh, the irony also at the other end with speech is that it leverages gesture. You can't see my gestures now, but if we're in the same room together, um, the gesture would add something to that. My body would add something to that meaning in a way that it can never do um, on a page. So in the middle, you have this multimodal stuff. You've got text at one end, speech at the other end of this this rainbow, this spectrum, if you like. Um, and in the middle, you have all these multimodal things like video and um, and whatever. So And speech being turned into... A text through dictation. So the after-language argument yeah. is you've got to separate the two out. You couldn't get two things more radically different. And that, that, that you know, um, again, text is a variant of image and um, uh, speech is a variant of sound that leverages body. Now, it, it, it's been... It, it's been such a blind spot, I find, this idea that, you know, people haven't... I mean, it's been... The, the distinction has been drawn before. I mean, uh, Douglas uh, Biber, for instance, has, has done a lot of interesting work in, in, in corpus linguistics to show, you know, that the grammars are inherently different. He, he, he back in 2000, 1999, in the Longman Grammar of Spoken and Written English, even wrote an entire chapter, some 60 pages on a grammar of, of conversation. But, I mean, these things weren't in the center of people's attention and and yep. and and it's so helpful for someone uh, for, for, for you two to have come along and give us the terminology and the grammar behind it because then we we notice just as you say yeah the affinities between image and um, text or the affinities on the other end between sound and speech you know there's there's something about a song you know a song that has lyrics in it that makes a lot more sense than when you just go and read that on the page yeah. you know yeah. whereas yeah. if you read a poem poems to me especially in the in the modern era you know from about the 18th century on are very much written for the page right you can I, see I, I, and this becomes more and more the case as time right. goes on if you read poetry magazine nowadays it's it's visual art at times exactly but, exactly but right. part of the problem exactly right. is how it's been politicised, particularly in the early grades in teaching uh, uh, people to read. And, you know, the, the debate has gone, you know, uh, particularly towards sound uh, as a way, you know, learning your sounds uh, against the letters in order to be able to learn to read. And, and not even, you know, balanced approaches are acceptable to some uh, uh, some people, you know, to, to do sight reading as well as phonics. So I think it's that debate uh, that has kind of um, ossified and made it a little bit difficult for us to imagine what the world is like now for people learning to read and learning to make meaning. Yeah, I'm glad you bring education in. I mean, it's no surprise you are educational, <laughs> educationalists as well. And education is just so essential. But I mean, another view, not just even just learning to read, but uh, an area where I have a fair amount of uh, experience myself is in second language learning or, uh, yes. or uh, for, um, foreign language learning. You notice there also this bias towards the written 
where yeah. it's not even realized, you know, essentially, and this is generalizing, but sometimes generalizing makes a point. Essentially, you'll notice that somebody who is 18 or above and is interested in learning a language and they're in a college setting, what they're trying to do is to learn how to speak that foreign language as it would be written. And they don't notice that. Yes. That's their idea of fluency. Yes. And, you know, it took me a while to get my head around it. And it helped also because I, I came across your work <laughs> to realize, ah, okay, so they're mixing forms. It's that simple. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, uh, our education system has a lot of habits now uh, that are no longer relevant. You know, a lot of um, pedagogical approaches which are regarded as sacred and, you know, need to be reproduced. But what we're trying to do is, is say, look, the range of meaning-making opportunities across disciplines, right, across whether you're in medicine or, you know, law or wherever, is now impacted by the affordances of new tools uh, that are uh, multimodal and synesthetic. And the traditions we have, the way we, in which we prepare teachers, we, we add a little bit of multimodality, on, on, we tack it on, to what we do anyway, but we need to kind of rethink radically uh, the capacities that our, our, our students come with who are, are now born into this moment and are making powerful meanings at a very young age with voice, with images, with uh, emojis, with, with a, a whole range of tools to relate to their friends, their parents, to kind of understand the world. And do you know what? When they come to school and they do phonics, we um, strip it out. It's boring and it's not relevant. And the reason why is they're in this other multimodal world, this other deeply multimodal world. And, you know, um, it's, 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 it's not relevant in the sense that there are 44, um, uh, kind of in English language, there are 44 sounds if you take diphthongs and whatever um, along the way. Um, and you, kids these days could learn 44 things like that, contrasts in, you know, 10 minutes. I mean, it's in, it's right. And, you know, yet they get drilled with kind of um, uh, fake words just to keep drilling this damn boring stuff in. And it's not how the world actually works anymore. But on the other hand, um, if you look at the actual range of sounds in spoken language, it's tens of thousands, which is it's particular combinations of letters in particular words. So there might be 44 canonical diphthongs. Um, uh, but, but, you know, we should be actually teaching um, to the meanings that are embodied across thousands and thousands of sounds. So it's kind of mindless narrowing down to this notion of simplistic notion of um, speech being a transliteration of text. Yeah, well, that brings us back uh, full circle to uh, the historical sketch you gave That's us when exactly. you were talking about these, you know, these synesthetic elaborate representation systems, the oral culture and the complex yeah. grammar um, John McWhorter uh, in his wonderful podcast talks often about spoken languages and um, that's Lexicon Valley for listeners if they're interested. And he, he says that, you know, amongst the so many different languages that we have uh, across the uh, planet, there's about 200 which are written. And he very often is interested in the one, you know, they have a substantial written corpus, let's say. And uh, he's talking often about the languages that are s speech based almost entirely some Native American languages, languages out in the uh, Brazilian um, Amazon and so on. And and these grammars can get highly complex. Yeah. And as you were saying earlier, this this writing system 
brings a level of simplification. So these 44 phonemes that they want to sell us as being the way that English sounds is as English sounds if we spoke as we printed. But we don't. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, this, there's there's sound mixing in with with actual speech. Uh, there's there's you know phonetics, which is not phonology. There's all kinds of things happening, just as you say. Yeah, and, and also to go back to the, you know, Halliday, Michael Halliday, has some really important work on the differences between speech and text, which really highlight all the stuff. If people want to reference, they want to go back to the readings. And in fact, we had a, a good colleague of ours back in Australia. Diana Slade, who wrote a whole book about casual conversation, how casual conversation happens. And one of the things is that even to write a book like that, it's nearly impossible to uh, to transcribe onto a page what happens in casual conversation. Right. So, and, and just to go back to another point we, we had earlier about inequalities, uh, in, in the ed- education context, the major effect on performance is socioeconomic background, right? Um, it's, you know the wealth and affordances that a family has or carers have, you know, um, talking at the dinner table, going to museums, going on excursion, exposure to, you know, the world uh, as, as a consequence of, you know, socioeconomic uh, uh, capacities. And that has the major effect. And yet we'd kind of drill kids to death without looking at the fact, well, what, have they had breakfast this morning? How do we not, how do we open up the world for them? How do we uh, expose them to more experience within the school context? If we want them to uh, grow uh, within the educational context, rather, if we want them to be more capable of making meaning in a variety of ways, and we leave that out of the equation, you know, we kind of leave, uh, and put it just on the human. And being. we leave it out of so many equations, unfortunately. Yeah. There was this wonderful piece just a couple of months back in the New Yorker. I can't remember yes. now the exact citation, but it was about um, it was it was a doctor talking about what needed to happen in the health system in America. And of course, there's so much, but it speaks to directly. He named three things, and I can't even remember the other two. They were more typical sorts of things, something to do with doctor training and whatever. But one was costs. Yes, it was. It was. It was that. So, and you know, and Simple. he and, and the question was medical. You know, it was like yeah. what for people's health yeah. and well-being. <laughs> you know, I mean, it. it, it, it I don't know. I, I, some people would find it entirely relevant. And for me, it was just what it, I had to put the article down for a moment. I was like, oh, wow. OK, yeah, that's that's so true. Yes. And but, even uh, even uh, when hospitals are required to look after you, even if you don't have any costs, the level of service, the number of people that turn up, you know, the system is breaking. But we won't go back to the systemic issues, you know, uh, that, you know, in this particular country are controlled by the medical system, pharmaceutical interests, and nobody will come up with a public a public answer to how we fund education, um, health, mm. rather, for everybody. So it's a political issue as well. But the socioeconomic component matters in all fields, and at the moment, it's accelerating in different directions who is getting into the you know the wealth area and who isn't and how many people with super world wealth control the rest of us so i don't think we can ever leave that out in uh, in terms of the uh, practices and the theories that we're engaging with about how humans uh, can meet their aspirations and about issues of justice and collaboration
Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things I've always um, very much respected in the area of systemic functionalism, that yes. most of the prax- practitioners have seen themselves as you know, doing a pliable work. You right. know, and I, I love that word, pliable, that it's built into the theory that it has. And, and, and that's what and that's what you do. I mean, uh, that's this uh, cyber social, which which I right. wanted to return to. I know we're winding down now in the last few minutes, but um, maybe as a sort of coda, uh, if we could. Because the cyber social has been hanging in the background of our in our discussion, could could one of you perhaps put a finger upon it and just sort of show it to us for a moment? I'll just start with the one sentence we have in that article, in in that the uh, the new technology and the devices has sort of become prosthesis for us, mm. right? Um, because we use them. Uh, to make meaning in multiple ways. We use them in education, we use them to access health. We, we, and, and somehow they use us now too because they know more than us, you know, in, in every instance. So there are kind of extraordinary benefits. You, you hear Bill Gates talking now about, you know, what is possible, what humans across the domain from getting access to health information, educational information, interpersonal, etc. However, we are sort of uh, on on the uh, crisis side, if you want to use that word. We are um, uh, not the word sort of when you're in jail. You're kind of in um, custody. In custody, yes. Uh, to the to these affordances, right? Uh, we we give and give and give and give of ourselves to them, but they then control what we get back. So. It's, a, it's a, an odd moment. We don't know how far it'll go, but certainly the cyber social, right, uh, as uh, an idea about the way meaning is made and how we relate uh, is something that we need to cons- take seriously. So, look, just to define cyber social, it's about our relationship to these meaning making machines. And it's a counterpoint, a deliberate counterpoint to artificial intelligence, which is artificial intelligence has with it the idea that, oh, the machine can replicate what humans do. No, it can't. It can, it can, have, it, you can, it, it can do very different things from humans. It can do some things much better than humans, uh, much more than humans, much faster than humans. That's why we use the damn things. Um, it can create telepresence for us across time and space. So um, these are very different things. It's nothing, there's nothing intelligent about it, nothing artificial about it. These are such different things. It's a, that's why we call it a cyber-social relationship between two very different types of intelligence, such that don't even use the word intelligence for what computers do. They're fantastically fast adding machines. All right. Well, closing out, um, let, let's go through our typical uh, brief uh, lightning round of this is what language means in our own takeaways. Um, maybe I'll just uh, start off or change today. And um, I, I think what I would say is uh, the way that you've also, Bill, just drawn up that, that, that contrast between the cyber and the cyber social and, and the artificial intelligence is, is one of those things. I mean, Yes, these these machines know more than we do, but it's because they know in a different way than we do, and we've designed them that way. And I see, you know, the cyber social with that hyphen connecting them in between. If you see the word written out, that's the way it looks. Is the symbol that we need to be looking at that hyphen? Right. Um, you know, we called one of those papers after language, and it was provocative to say that it's not as if 
language is doesn't matter and isn't a big part of how we continue to make meaning and, and to meet our aspirations in the world. What we're trying to do is kind of shake the system or shake the reader into thinking this is we're heading in a different direction now whether we like it or not and language is one part of it but language uh, and me and the meaning that language holds can now be manifest uh, with different modes anywhere anytime also the after bit is it's a category that lumps together two incredibly different things in a deceptive way right I think that's a great takeaway because I have to say, and I'm adding on now another thought, but I have to say that I can't really use language anymore in my normal writing or whatever because I, I have to ask myself, which do I really mean, speech or text? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. you've changed things, at least for one person. All right. Well, uh, thank you uh, for a, a wonderful discussion again. My guests were Mary Kalanzis and Bill Cope, and this is Daniel Shea signing out until next time here on All We Mean.